Welcome to the Masculinity Podcast, conversations about masculinity, men, and our relationships with them. My name's Mel, and I invite you to pop the kettle on, make a mug of your hot beverage of choice, and join us for a relaxed and open conversation. Today on the Masculinity Podcast, we're going to be talking about some topics that are going to be sensitive for folks. They may bring up some triggering thoughts or feelings. You might find yourself feeling a little bit agitated listening to it because we're going to talk about consent and we're going to talk about accountability. So before we get into today's episode, I just want to invite you to make sure that you're in a good space to listen to this. And while you listen to the podcast, please do look after yourself. If you notice yourself uh, phasing out or disassociating in any way or not remembering what was just talked about, please take a moment to pause, pause the playback, go for a walk, be outside, connect in nature, and look after yourself because these are definitely not easy topics to talk about. And I really value that you are engaging with this material today. So joining us on the Masculinity Podcast today, we have uh, three guests, and I'm very, very excited to have these excellent humans to talk with me about these topics. Kim D is a passionate educator with over 18 years of teaching, facilitation, and outreach training experience. She holds a PhD in evolution and behavior and is a co-lead of the Greater Vancouver Interactive Society Conduct Committee, and along with myself, is co-founder of the Vancouver-based grassroots organization, The Consent Crew. We also have Justin Roll, who is a consent advocate and youth and children's program organizer living in Vancouver. In addition to volunteering with the consent crew, Justin previously facilitated workshops in both high schools and elementary schools across the lower mainland of BC, talking specifically with young men about masculinity and consent. And we're also joined by Victor Salmon, an intersectional mixed-race feminist, queer relationship anarchist, educator, consultant, volunteer, mediator. Uh, Victor is one of the directors at large of the Metro Vancouver Kink uh, organization and is an accountability subcommittee member. Uh, He blogs on restorative justice and accountability at victorsalmon.com, and he's a Vancouver Consent Crew facilitator. He also hosts his own podcast at uh, Intimate Interaction. Thank you for having us. Yay. Yay. Yeah, thanks for having us, Mel. Uh, starting out this work in our communities has, has led all three of us some really interesting mm-hmm. places. Mm-hmm. When we started this little project, Kim, I think a lot of people didn't quite understand what we were doing. Maybe because we didn't totally understand what we were doing back then. But it came about because both of us were looking at the situations that men in our communities were experiencing with being called out and really not understanding what they had done wrong. And we had a mutual friend who put us in touch about this. And yeah, certainly. I had just moved here from Alberta, where um, I was out one night and uh, the next morning woke up and realized that someone had slipped something into my drink. And I didn't recall too much about what happened after that, other than the fact that I had been sexually assaulted is what I was able to put together from that picture. And once I had reckoned with 
all of the feelings that are really, really common for folks who survive assaults, it came to me that if we were able to have conversations about what we wanted and what we needed and what we were hoping to get out of, of those sorts of interactions, that perhaps that person might not have chosen that way to get what he wanted. And maybe we both could have really enjoyed that encounter. And so when I was grappling with that, it was, yeah, our mutual friend that I was chatting with about this. And and he said, I think that you need to talk to somebody who's also hoping that people can have more courageous conversations and, and be able to ask for what they want and need in ways that are much healthier. And here we are almost five years mm-hmm. later now. And there's become so much more awareness in our culture and society at large about the need for this kind of work. Um, I'm really curious. Um, I mean, uh, Justin and Victor, as as people who exist in a uh, in maleness in society, um, do you notice that difference, or is it just in the little bubbles that we exist in? In terms of the general awareness that men have about consent and in in all its different aspects do you find that there is more awareness now than there was five ten years ago yeah i think with the i think with the me too movement taking off the way that it has and promoting i guess just a lot more mindfulness and knowledge and conversations i think it's really gotten the conversation started at the very least and i think a lot of people are at the very least, willing to talk about it now in a way that five or 10 years ago, I don't think men were having the same conversations about consent. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that men maybe weren't even familiar with consent as a concept Mm -hmm. and certainly not in the way that we necessarily talk about it now. But after there's been a lot more like public conversations about it, then now at least, not to say for better or for worse, but whether like regardless of people's reaction to it, being positive or negative, at least more men are aware that this is a thing now. So what is consent? I would define, it depends on whether we're talking legally or interpersonally. I think interpersonally, consent is a subjective experience of agreement. I think Victor summed that up really nicely from an interpersonal perspective. Yeah, I think when, because I used to do workshops with teenagers around consent and just at a very basic level, especially when I'd sometimes talk about consent to elementary school age children, like you really have to talk about in terms of permission and like a mutual agreement to put it in, in terms that people can understand without understanding like all the broader, more nebulous things that we talk about when we talk about consent culture and all these other things. Permission and mutual consent, mutual agreement. I, I really love the idea of mutual agreement. Um, that's the definition of consent I keep coming back to, that it's enthusiastic mutual agreement to an activity. I was just about to add the enthusiastic part because you can certainly agree to an activity, but unless you're enthusiastic about it in some way, for me, that feels a little bit less like consent than if I'm enthusiastic and the other people involved are also enthusiastic. So just for clarification, when I said a subjective experience of agreement, I meant for one person. So can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, totally. I guess for me, if I'm having an interaction with someone and I mean, absolutely, you can get 
enthusiastic, informed consent from that person, that person may still come back to me later and say, well, you know, the first time that I was sort of introduced to your name, it was because I was listening to your podcast or I came to one of your classes. And in the moment, I really didn't feel like I was really excited about it, but I also really didn't feel like I could say no because blank. Like maybe I was afraid of consequences or maybe I was afraid it would hurt my standing. Just because that person's giving me informed, enthusiastic consent doesn't necessarily mean they're having a consensual experience. So I try and uncouple those two things and just think about what I do when I get consent from someone as the best, the best, most educated and informed guesswork possible. Yeah. And I think where you're touching on is that that super nebulous place that a lot of people get stuck on person. The person said, yes, it seemed like they were into it. They were making all the right noises and sounds. And then they came back and they felt, turns out they felt coerced. And um, I remember when Kim and I were creating the workshops way, way back when we started playing with this idea of like, well, whose desire is this that is being met? And, and what is the actual root desire that's being met and really playing with how can we, how can we encourage people to acknowledge what their motivation is for asking for something or for participating in an activity. Like if someone's a yes to you because you're a celebrity and you seem really cool, they're saying yes because they want to be close to a celebrity or because they want to know you outside of the celebrity. And that's an area that we see coming up a lot right now with these big celebrity call outs that are happening. And, and uh, it's so challenging for people to wrap their heads around this, I think. Mm-hmm. It really opens up one of those gray areas that we often find ourselves in. And, and if we're not clear with ourselves, and if we're not comfortable communicating what we're clear with on what we want and what we need, then often we may look back and have these, these thoughts about, well, actually, what I wanted was not what I truly got in that situation. Although on the surface, like you mentioned, it absolutely might look like that's what you wanted. So Mm -hmm. it's, I, I think it points to that complexity that we run into again and again of consent, unfortunately, isn't super black and white. And how do we best engage in interactions in a way that as Victor says, like, is it's subjective agreement for our subjective experience mm-hmm. that is agreement for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super challenging to navigate, especially when we're trying to nail down like one specific definition. I think a really good test of, of a definition mm-hmm. is does this work in all cases? And like, how flexible is this to the fringe cases? It may not seem like the most relevant um, for all situations, but it's a really good test of the definition. And I found a lot of the definitions I look at are very wishy-washy, even in terms of legal definitions. The notion of a meeting of minds is all well and good from an abstract intellectual sense. But what does it mean for two drunk people at a party? Yeah, absolutely. What, What does it mean? Or what does it mean for two incredibly tired people at the end of a night? Or, or yeah, what it's, there's a lot of a lot of gray areas in there. Yeah, and I would add to that, what does it mean for two people who are really just high on each other's hormones? Yes. Yeah. You know, your ability to consent to something is changed by your brain chemistry. 
And we know that being in a romantic situation with someone changes your brain chemistry. The whole thing at the, the moment just takes you away. And then in hindsight, you're like, why, why did I do that? Yeah. And I, I think this is where I've certainly noticed, maybe more so when we were just starting out with this work, but that a lot of guys have been raised, and I'm using that word guys consciously, uh, have been raised with the idea that to be uh, romantic, to be manly, you have to be able to sweep a woman off her feet. You know, this is the this is the cis heteronormative uh, ideal of of sexy romance is that you come in all Han Solo and you sweep her off her feet and you get carried away into the moment. And you don't have to use your words. It's just a feeling and you roll with it. Mm-hmm. And you actually have to be the one that's in charge of that. Like you are responsible for cultivating the scenario that leads to the romantic moment happening. That's right. Can you say more about that? Well, I think like if we look at media and, and a lot of the places that you get that that like very particular message from, um, that like sweep off the feet kind of thing. A lot of that comes into play because of the stories. So, so you have like a, a male protagonist who then has done something to impress their love interest. And then having now succeeded in that goal, they've now like cultivated a situation in which they, then get the reward of the romantic or sexual endpoint. Mm-hmm. So it's a very like protagonist centered, like you are as a man, the person who is now responsible for creating a scenario, which then leads to the result that you want. I can think of a really good example of that, that I saw in a TV show recently. Um, I don't know if any of you watch Riverdale. This is my guilty pleasure. It's Riverdale. <laughs> it's it's on my list, but I haven't made it there yet. <laughs> uh, it's such teen drama. Um, and there is, there is an episode recently where one of the main characters is developing a new romance of uh, one of the female characters. And, and they have exactly what you described there, Justin. They're, they're, there's this moment and he, the male protagonist, is the one who is leading the experience. It moves into this moment where there's, they're like almost nose to nose and looking at each other. Their eyes are locked. And then, this was excellent, he said can I kiss you? And I was like, all excited. I was like, oh my gosh, he's role modeling, asking for consent. Did she give an answer? No. No. (laughs) She didn't say anything. She just Uh, kept staring at him and then he kissed her. And I was like, oh, you were so close. So close. (laughs) Like there was... I think the one that hit me really hard was when I was in in the theater watching Black Panther, and and we talk about like this this like monumental movie that has had like such an impact and, and is being recognized in this great way. But what always comes back to me, and I was telling this with with a bunch of like young guys, like right after I'd seen it, who were all like Wakanda forever, and they were doing all this cool stuff about the movie. And I was like, but did you guys notice? And none of them did, of course that, you know, the love interest was with his ex, which is really interesting. Um, and that's not like super common. So that's cool. 
but then at the end of the movie like after the whole like victory moment and stuff they're, they're standing there in the street and he just goes in for a kiss and then immediately and then both of them are like looking at each other and stuff and and he just like has this wry smile and he says like oh i couldn't help myself no and it was just like <laughs> you have you can, you can have things that are so progressive in some ways and then are still like going by the same old formula. I think there's also something to be said for intersectionalism and how there is, there isn't really like one straight line. There's no linear progression. Mm. Like I noticed this when I was in India, it was like, you know, you can have an elected female prime minister and you can have, traditional gender roles be that a woman's in charge of money in the household and still have other elements that are really what we would view as regressive from like a Western European descended culture. So it's really neat to see how like there's no straight line of progress. There are just things that cultures do well and things that cultures do poorly, I think. I think as well in in the case of the Black Panther movie, there is a context for these two individuals having some kind of established consent beforehand like they have a long established relationship and that that i always go back to that idea of castles of consent mm-hmm. that you know in within a long-term relationship individuals can build up a really good knowledge of where each other's boundaries are and that allows um engagements to flow more freely without having to stop and check at every point in time yeah one of the things i love talking about is uh, like a good way to contextualize is like do you ask your mom before you give her a hug Mm. and some people do but i would say like most people that i ask that question they like kind of look at me they're like why would i ask my mom before giving her a hug like she's my mom and i'm like okay cool because you've built up that relationship with her from like for a lot of people for for most of their lives um, so you have that established relationship and both of you can engage in that action without it really coming into question whether or not there's consent and maybe trusting that the other person, like if my mom had a flu, then she probably would tell me that and like have a valid reason to not engage in that. And I can trust her to actually communicate that to me. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And I often chat about this in workshops where we talk about what consent might look like in long-term relationships. And I have a couple of examples from uh, my nesting partner and I, where sometimes, you know, he'll be at the, at the sink doing dishes and I'll just go up to him and grab his butt. And every once in a while, he likes to just turn around and say, Hey, I didn't consent to that. And then we have this funny conversation about, yeah, we've known each other for a really long time, but you're right. I, I grabbed her butt and I didn't check in. And at least though we have that relationship where we can easily and openly talk about why in that moment, maybe he didn't want me to grab his butt and that was surprising or whatever it was that made him feel uncomfortable in that. And so I, I think that there's always, it's always a nice reminder, like you said, to, to know that you could check in. But if you have that established relationship, then it's also easier to have conversations about moments where maybe you weren't totally into that action or that interaction. And then the the sort of consequence of that interaction perhaps isn't as um, great should it go poorly as it would be in a relationship that doesn't have that long history. 
I think where the cultural sort of baseline right now with consent and understanding is sitting at is this story that men don't understand consent and that this is what leads to sexual assault. And I don't believe that's the whole picture. <laughs> and I don't think any of you do either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that, that is the way no. that it gets presented, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's just journalists trying to put a nice tidy spin on things. But one of the interesting things that came up with the Me Too movement is a lot of men coming forward with their own stories of um, sexual assault. And that's a really challenging place, it seems, for people to navigate. Um, it seems like it's a challenging place for people to come to terms with. And I'm wondering if uh, any of you have any thoughts on that. And one of the interesting points is that, like when we're talking about men who've experienced sexual assault, at least from my understanding, I don't know the exact statistic, is that the vast majority of male-identified people who've experienced sexual assault, their assaulter was also a masculine person. So, like, I've heard that before, that, like, men will say, well, like, obviously it's not just a problem for women, like obviously this can't just be a gender thing because men also experience this. But then if we look at from the point of view of who's being victimized as more as like who are the perpetrators of sexual assault, mm-hmm. then the pattern still persists. And I think we don't have to make generalizations that invalidate or um, detract from people's experiences um, for men who have been sexually assaulted by women. Mm. I think it's enough to just say that it tends to happen with greater frequency, that it tends to be a bigger problem. And certainly that our ideas of gender impact it, even when men are sexually assaulting other men. A lot of the same toxic masculine ideals about dominance, like I honestly believe that really factors into it. Having said that, I've been sexually assaulted twice in my life and both times um, it was not a man who sexually assaulted me. So yeah, these there's a wide spectrum of experiences that folks have. And I think talking about things in very relative terms and just being able to say like, yeah, this tends to happen um, more frequently like this. So just because women sometimes sexually assault men doesn't mean it's not a gendered uh, issue. Yeah. And even like further to that point, I think the, the one big time that somebody had like a big consent violation against me was uh, a female partner who didn't, and, and I don't blame her for this, but didn't really, check in with me and wasn't necessarily looking to read my body language in the situation. And that I don't blame her for that, but I think a really big contributing factor to that was still the toxic masculinity that her assumption was likely that I would want to engage in that activity no matter what. Yeah. Right. That's that that assumption that men are always pursuing sex and are always up for sex and that women are the gatekeepers of sex. And if I, I as a cis woman say, uh, yeah, I'm up for sex, then you should, you should want to fuck me because you're a man. At least that's how the script is supposed to go. Apparently. (laughs) And there is, there is definite consequences if you break that script as a man, in my experience. Yeah. Like if if I tell a woman that I'm not interested in having sex with her when she expects me or feels entitled to me wanting to have sex with her, there can be some pretty intense hurt feelings. There can be sometimes you'll have the like what's wrong with me conversation. It's like people can be so entrenched in that script that 
and, and again, this isn't to invalidate any other perspectives. I'm still probably the physically stronger of the two of us in that situation. And with that comes a lot of privilege and safety. Still, it's not fun to be on the receiving end of entitlement like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the the fear of consequences, whatever the other person's gender, is one of the big reasons that we hold back from expressing our no. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to, to speak as a woman who's who has been surprised by male partners who weren't in into a sexual interaction because I was always trained that guys were up for it all the time. And so the very first time that a guy said, I'm not interested in that moment, and this was a long-term partner, it was just this baffling situation for me. I was like, I don't actually right now, right now understand how to manage this. And then the script that we're often taught as female socialized folks is that if a man doesn't want Mm -hmm. you in, in these sorts of interactions, that you aren't desirable. And then we get tangled up in this idea about, well, what does desire mean to our value as humans, especially as, as feminized bodies? Like what, what is, it's, it's a bit of a mind fuck to pardon the language, but like it, it is really something to wrap all of our heads around because we're just taught that guys should be up for it all the time. Women should be up for accepting it all the time. Like, and, and, how amazing though now that we're having these conversations and really starting to untangle those really toxic ideals that we have around gendered sexuality and what that looks like. Yeah, I, I remember the first time I was confronted with that as well, Kim, with a male partner. And and it was a situation where I misread the physical signals that we were giving each other. And, you know, at this point, my only experience of sex was sex that happened without words. If you had to stop and talk about something and tell your partner, actually, I'd like you to touch me this way, that was interpreted um, by a previous partner that I'd had as some kind of commentary that he was incapable of pleasing me. Yes, I've had that happen too. <laughs> and so I, having had one sexual partner for a very long time, I'd gotten used to that as the the general way to have sex. And then um, when I started dating new people, I had an experience with someone. We had a very good rapport. We had very good chemistry. And I just completely misread the situation. And in the moment, he didn't feel like he could say anything because he didn't want to ruin my experience. And it was only afterwards that he was like, hey, so that thing that happened didn't feel so great for me. And I was just mortified. I just couldn't believe like I was like, oh, my God, I've I've, like I felt like I've hurt you. I'm a bad person. This is terrible. What do we need to do? And. And we were able to have a really, really good constructive conversation about, you know, what does this mean about us? Where did we, where did I misread the signals? What could we do to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again? And we were able to repair from that. But it was a very big eye-opening moment for me when I realized that this story that I've been told that men are only after one thing uh, was bullshit. And that as, as women, because we're raised that way, we assume that, that we might be capable of doing harm as well. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think those sorts of scripts set us up in a space where we do underestimate as women the potential harm that we can do. 
And we also, I, I, this goes back to a little bit earlier on in the conversation where we were talking about this trope of the, the masculine or the male pursuant and, and setting up that very romantic situation and, and being the pursuer and the one that makes things happen. And, and one thing that has created a confusing situation for me as I explore my queerness a bit more is that I find myself struggling with that thing that I grew up with about the masculine or the male being the one that set up the situation and pursuing it. And now that I've started seeing women, which one of us starts? I don't know. Like I end up with these really like these moments where I just feel paralyzed because I struggle with initiating and so that I think that that sort of trope and that that script is really damaging for a whole lot of reasons and and often for not ones that we really think about or aren't expecting to have to think about. So in in the work that each of us have done, we work with a variety of genders. What have you found has been the male response to hey, we're going to offer a workshop on consent? Now or 5 years ago? <laughs> Well, how about five years ago? Uh, Well, five years ago when we started offering uh, consent education in our shared community, Mel, I remember us having intense pushback, especially from uh, some male-identified folks on the board about what does it mean for us to bring consent education into a community that thinks themselves to be incredibly progressive? And why would we do that? We don't have a consent problem here. If you bring this education here, you're saying we have a consent problem. And that's not something. And none of us, everyone knows what consent means and so on and so forth. And hyperbole ensued. I remember somebody expressing concern that we were going to go around to where people were having sex and be like, (laughs) being like, (laughs) which would be fun, actually, in the right environment. Um, Maybe a burning man. (laughs) That could be a theme cat. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Come to the sex checks checklist camp. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there was that concern or that, that us speaking about consent would undermine some incredible community norms around um, the sort of fuckery and, and the trickery and the heckling that happens. And, and there was a lot of pushback. And, and for me, I noticed that that was very gendered pushback. And also gendered support where there were a lot of women in the community that were super keen to, to start having that information out there. And now I see much less pushback and much more support as a whole, at least in, in the communities I'm in. What about in the kink community, Victor? I mean, consent has always been at the forefront, I think, of kink education. How it's practiced is kind of a different story sometimes. I think there's been a lot more awareness in sort of the post Me Too environment and the kink scene, certainly not without its problems. But when I think about a lot of what I view as the best consent education, typically it tends to come out of edge cases. It comes out of trying to find that edge of like, okay, so you want to do consensual non-consent. How do you negotiate a scene that's going to involve playing with the idea that the sex you're having is non-consensual when underneath that it's a consensual desired experience. I mean, I think you have to really take consent apart and put it back together very, very carefully if you want to try and do something that dangerous. 
and just to clarify for people who don't understand that concept, um, consensual non-consent is a specific type of play within kink where uh, basically it's, it's coming from if you have a fantasy of, of losing power, losing control, or being the person to take power or take control, there's a way to negotiate that in a mutually uh, agreed upon way. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of you're you're entering into an altered state for a set a set period of time, for example. At least that's that's the experience that I've had had of that. Yeah, we don't have to make this about that specifically. It can it can be a lot of things, but yeah, typically the idea is you're consenting to an experience where you're role playing not having consented to an experience. Mm-hmm. So yes, typically it's a feeding experience. It can be a cathartic experience. It can be a healing experience. It can be an intense and erotic experience. It can be a lot of different things to different people. It really depends on. Um, their psychological makeup, what they want, and there are consensual ways to meet those needs. So when you have to dissect consent like that, a lot of the time you have to come up with really good working definitions of consent. That's one of the reasons why I define a consensual, the way that I look at consent as being a singular subjective experience of agreement. Because if in the moment I feel like I agreed to all the things and and I felt a subjective experience of agreement, then yeah, I would say that I had a consensual experience. When you're dealing with interacting between two people, you're dealing with like agreements and yeah, it's absolutely important to negotiate things and and talk about things. But if two adults, fully intelligent, coherent adults have an experience that is not best practices, let's say. So maybe two people at a party are drinking and they're both drunk and they have sex and they get up the next morning. They're like, cool. I totally feel like I drink often and I feel like that was a situation where I felt competent to give consent for me based on my set of standards for myself. And the other person's like, yeah, me too. And they feel really good about that experience. I don't feel like it's my responsibility or that I even have the authority to come in and say, no, you're both wrong. What you did is not consensual. I think the best I can say is, yeah, that, that, that sounds like a really dangerous practice. And one day you're probably going to run into a person who doesn't wake up with that experience. Yeah, I, I this is a slight tangent, but I just want to reflect back that what you said about consensual non-consent play. Yeah, I think that's really important as a skill set to be able mm. to develop that level of communication and negotiation about what you want to do intimately is like that's the level that you need in, even in a non-kink relationship. If we go back to that idea of I'm going to sweep you off your feet and we're just going to go with the flow. <laughs> I would say that's a very high risk behavior. Yeah. But if you have the skills to negotiate that, you can make it work. Right. right. And and consensual non-consent is kind of that same thing in my mind of let's just go with the flow. I'm going to just surrender and trust you to lead this experience. That isn't really my understanding of how, like that's certainly not how I would practice consensual non-consent. I think just going with the flow is typically a bad idea. Having said that, again, I don't mean to be judgmental by saying bad idea. It's really a question of like, what is a higher risk behavior and what is a lower risk behavior? And in BDSM, a lot of the time we're playing on these edges that are very high risk behaviors. So the question always comes back, cool, we want to do this batshit crazy thing (laughs) that a lot of people would call us crazy for. How can we do it in such a way that it's sustainable so that, you know, we can do this every weekend or we can do this for five years without an incident instead of one year without an incident? Like, a lot of kink for me is thinking in that sort of triage way of like, okay, what we're doing is really dangerous. We both acknowledge that there are serious risks to what we're doing and how can we do it as safely as humanly possible? 
And do you find that men in the kink community in particular are more on board with consent education? Or do you find that they still give the kind of pushback that men might do more in more mainstream society? With consent education, I don't think that there is as much pushback for men in the kink community. However, as soon as you start talking about accountability around like, it's not about shame, like anyone can make mistakes. The important thing is that we're working on reducing harm, promoting healing, promoting closure, like those sorts of things. Um, like that, that piece, I think, is still in progress. I feel like it's, it's getting across better in the kink scene than I've seen it, than I've seen accountability represented outside in the mainstream. I want to come back to accountability because that's a really, a really hot topic right yeah, now. Yeah, sure. Uh, Justin, I'm curious for you with, with the work that you do, because you work a lot with youth, um, with, with teen boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you find that they respond to consent education work? Yeah, so for, for context, um, for two years, I worked with an organization that would go into high schools and elementary schools and talk mostly about masculinity and kind of that whole like box of masculinity and we'd really kind of break that down and then as a third part of a three-part workshop we would talk about consent um so consent was i feel like not an afterthought but it was always the last thing we talked about by necessity because you need to talk about the framework of masculinity and how we got to this point before you can really talk about okay so with all this baggage of how society is telling you to be a man how could we then talk about bringing that into our romantic relationships and our interactions with other people. In terms of the reaction response to that, it was really difficult, I think. And one of the reasons that I eventually stopped doing it was because it was mandated for the grades. So we would go in and an entire grade would be pulled out of class to come to the workshop. So being in a situation where somebody is telling you, okay, you have to sit down and learn about this and you are forced into this conversation. I think (laughs) it's funny because they're not consenting to being in the room to talk about consent. Right. Yeah. And there's a problem there where it's like we, as a necessity, if we want to move forward as a society on this, like everybody needs to learn about this, but doing it, in such a way where we're forcing people into the situation and not necessarily being mindful of the differences and where people are at with it. Like I'd have feed, we'd have feedback forms and some people would come out of that workshop, like very few people, but some people would, you know, swear and cuss at me on the page and say like, this is BS very seldomly. Most of those people just don't care enough to write anything, but then there'd be people that were like, well, this was eye opening." Thank you for having this conversation. And then there'd also be lots of people who's like, oh, I know this stuff already. Mm. And I was always the most cautious of those people. Because if you have a teenage boy who thinks that he already knows everything there is to know about consent, I tried to like put forward that I don't know, that I'm not coming in as an expert. I'm not a sex educator. I'm here to talk as a person who has experienced things in his own life around consent and here talk about my own experiences and stuff. And I'd kind of preface the whole workshop around that, but to have them think that they know everything. And yet none of those people really asked questions at the end of the workshop either. I felt was very dangerous. So 
there's people that know there's like lots of guys that just think, Oh, you know, I've heard the vague stuff about, you know, respecting other people's boundaries and stuff. And I'm on board with that Sweet, I know everything there is to know. And that was probably me when I was that age. And I went on to be a young adult who did not know everything I needed to know and still don't know everything I need to know. And then there's still quite a bit of animosity amongst a lot of young men who, when you try to even broach these conversations uh, in like as non-judgmental a way as possible, they still just have a, a fierce animosity towards the idea that based on their demographics, but who they are as a person, things that they don't have control over, they see it as an attack on them. They see like the conversations around consent and trying to be a better person and to learn how to be a better person as that there's something wrong with them. This goes back to what Kim was saying earlier about if you have to have consent education, that implies that we have a consent problem and, and we want to be in denial that there could be any kind of consent problem. Cause you know, we've got it perfect already. Sure. That's such an important point because I, I think it, it points to this general societal challenge that we have around admitting that we are imperfect that our understanding is imperfect, that our behaviors may be imperfect. And I, I think that we really, really see challenges around that when we have massive call-outs and there isn't an opportunity for people to reflect on what they've done, but rather everything is is an attack. And I think that that's sort of in the far end of the spectrum of of the challenges that people face. Like anytime that you hear, it's, it's hard to hear from anyone that maybe you aren't behaving in a way that's, that's making people feel safe and loved and cared for. If people are, are perceiving these workshops and any of the education we do is us telling them that they don't know something, it's, it's hard for people to think, I don't know that, or I don't have a good understanding because we don't, I don't think we necessarily do a good job of setting people up in a curious mindset and also in a mindset where they can receive feedback and want to improve on that as opposed to perceiving that as this is a personal attack or if I mess up, will this on the extreme end of it turn into this massive public call out and I perceive that my life will be over. Totally. And that was the thing. I think what I got out of doing the workshops, like the biggest thing across the board when I started figuring out that I could ask this question was, are you guys afraid of being called out when people would start to be like, Oh yeah, they'd always think about it in a legal context because that's how it's framed for, for clarification. I think most of the, the teenagers actually don't know how big the Me Too movement is. And when it first started happening, I would ask them and they actually weren't quite aware. So because we're on so different social media platforms, like, Older people use Facebook and stuff and and teenagers and younger people don't. A lot of the teenagers didn't know that the Me Too movement was really even a thing. Um, But that all they saw was this aftermath of like celebrities and people being called out and the threat of litigation. And that's what they internalized. And so now their only frame of reference for this conversation is, okay, people will falsely accuse me of doing something that I didn't intend to do, or even if I did do it, I didn't intend to do it. And that will have legal ramifications and it will ruin my life. Mm -hmm. 
and they are terrified of it. They're absolutely terrified and they're in defense mode right now. And I think rightly so. I mean, the we've talked about this in our consent crew workshops, how a lot of social justice is still operating from a paradigm that's rooted in dominance culture. That's rooted in this paradigm of in order to survive, I have to prove that I have more power than you do, or I have to take away your power. There's a finite amount of power to go around. And and so the a, the way that a lot of call outs are done is to ostracize the other person, which treats them as less than human and um, treats them as as someone who you're, is never going to be able to be accepted in society again. Um, and when we've done those beautiful visionings about what would a consent culture look like, I just love that every single time we've done that. People start thinking about what would it look like to hold people accountable in a culture that's based on consent, that's based more on kindness, where you're deconstructing this idea of uh, perfectionism and social capital and power and economic power in, in, in the structures that we're used to functioning. What would it look like in a consent culture to hold people accountable? And, and it would be a lot kinder for one thing you know, calling attention to someone's uh, imperfect behavior is not a death sentence. It's an opportunity for them to learn to do better and return to um, a better relationship with their community, one would hope. One would hope. And I, I think that points to perhaps something that we don't necessarily emphasize enough as consent educators around sort of the difference between a consent accident and an actual consent violation where any of us can make a mistake because we misread a situation or we didn't understand what someone else's enthusiastic consent looked like. And and we were going in with the best information that we had. And it wasn't like, it, it was actually an accident. There was, there was no, intent behind it to break people's boundaries and make people feel unsafe. And, and there's so many reasons that we can get into those situations. And I mean, a consent accident, it it could be as simple as bumping into somebody on the dance floor while you're just absolutely losing yourself in the music. And people could perceive that in a very different way than it was intended. And how, how can we tease out what is an accident and how to recover from it for all parties versus what is a violation and how to recover from that? And where are the pieces? Where have we gone off a, a path that we could come back to to recover from that as communities and as individuals? Yeah, the issues around accountability. I think that's where a lot of people are getting stuck right now. I see it when I'm working with clients and I see it when I'm having conversations with male identifying friends, mostly sometimes some, some non-male identifying friends as well, but when they're, they've received this feedback and they don't know what to do with it because if you acknowledge I made a mistake, it feels like you are hanging yourself. But if you don't acknowledge, then people are going to get louder and somehow that amplifies you as a problem. And neither of those seem like very desirable outcomes. Uh, One of the pieces of advice that we were given actually by a lawyer for our conduct committee was that when we're doing interviews, if somebody's asked for an investigation into uh, a conduct, something that has gone against our code of conduct, that 
the way that we structure our questions is incredibly important because should any of the documents that we have be pulled into an actual court of law because things got to that extreme point, should those documents contain an admission of guilt on that person's part, then legally that can be treated very different differently than it is by a community. And so we're, we're sometimes in this space where accountability in a community looks very different than legal accountability and what accountability looks like in a court of law. Victor, you've been doing a lot of work around this uh, topic. And um, I was looking at your website the other day and you have this wonderful piece on there about an impact statement. So an impact statement is one tool out of many that you can use. So basically the way that I look at restorative justice is I see it very much as, um, are you familiar with Dr. Evelyn Zeller's work, her take on peace circles? Yes, she's fantastic. Yes, she is. So the way that she talks about going into circle is through this four-step process that repeats. And I've sort of generalized some of those ideas and um, borrowed and cited from her. The way that I look at those four things are suitability, preparation, activity, and follow-up. So suitability means you're just taking a look at, okay, here's a situation people are asking for a sort of justice. Is it appropriate? Are the people appropriate? Do they have values that are consistent with restorative justice? Do they, are, they, are they actually asking for restorative justice or do they just want some kind of punitive vigilantism, which is more and more common these days? The second part, preparation, is extremely important. And I feel like a lot of people miss this and they rush straight into using tools. And you can't just sit a traumatized person down across from someone that was involved with that trauma and just expect them to magically be better. It's not as simple as just like expecting people to talk. So the preparation is probably the most crucial part of this. The third step activity is whatever that activity happens to be. Most people think about mediation or a healing circle. It doesn't have to be that. And then follow up is to take a look at how that sort of went for everyone. So you've got suitability, preparation, activity, and follow up. So how do impact statements fit into this? Well, I was looking at at um, witnessing and how witnessing has been used in court systems, even in the United States. And I was sort of mulling over, well, witnessing typically seems to involve a whole bunch of very harmed individuals standing up on a podium and essentially dictating one version of events to the other person, which is important. It's important that their version of events is considered. I think it's very important that we center survivors because center, survivors typically don't get centered. They typically get um, silenced. So with impact statements, I've kind of found like a balance between those two worlds where a survivor can put their version of events, their feeling, their feelings, essentially everything that occurred in their reality. So how experiences landed for them, all of that. And they kind of get to be heard in that sense even if they don't want to actually sit across from the person that was involved. So basically those impact statements can be witnessed by a person who's alleged to have caused a lot of harm. And this can be done with a trained mediator, um, a professional counselor. Theoretically, it could be done with someone who's not trained, um, but has experience doing that kind of work or wants experience doing that kind of work, like a community leader. Again, there's a lot more risk to not use a professional, at the same time, a lot of people in alternative communities 
um, may not have the funds to use a professional, in which case they may find themselves sitting with a community leader and that can lead to higher risk, but it can also lead to really positive results without the investment. So impact statements are a really valuable way to summarize. What you described there, it keeps the person who's felt the harm safe from being reactivated in their harm. Uh, I love that you said like people try to rush into processes and and uh, and they sit down in front of each other before they're ready. And that can be really damaging to do that because that can make a situation worse. I've been right, in that situation right. and it made it way worse. Whereas having an impact statement, it then also gives space for the person whose actions created the harm to be able to digest that and process mm-hmm. that away from the other person. Yes. Because this is one of the things that I find is super challenging is for people who have who have committed harmful actions to really come to terms with that takes a bunch of emotional processing. It takes looking at yourself. Sometimes you end up having to look at it and go, wow, like I do have this pattern of behavior and oh my gosh, it comes from an experience I had in childhood and that's why I'm acting out. And, and you kind of, you, you need a, a little sort of mini dose of therapy, sometimes maybe more than a mini dose of therapy to go along with that to really be able to digest what the impact you had on another person was and being able to take a statement and then work with someone who's there more as a coach for you rather than as someone who's helping the person who was harmed um, seems to me to be like a really good way to do it. Yeah, it's, it's certainly one option. It also, the nice thing about impact statements is again, we're not coming at this from a punitive or a shame-based framework. So if a person is being called out and people are saying, you know, you're a terrible human, you've done all these awful things, you're the you're the fucking worst, you know, you have all this anger, this outpouring of anger from the community, and rightly so, it's a response to harm. But if that person is caught totally unawares and is threatened and afraid, which are very reasonable things to feel at a time like that, how do you offer them the space to process and give them the coaching and counseling while simultaneously centering survivors? And I think the answer to that is having the survivors on a piece of paper where they don't have to put any more emotional labor into that process and then working through the allegations, working through the harmful behaviors, because really it's not about allegations and crimes anymore. The focus is going to then shift to how can you become a slightly less harmful person by tomorrow? And, or at least how can you be moving in the direction of being a less harmful person moving forward? And if you have one or two impact statements to, to work with, that's great. You can literally parse out like, okay, this is what these people are saying happened. And maybe that's not the intention of the person who's alleged to have caused all this harm, but clearly they had an interaction that was harmful for someone. And that person wrote that harmful interaction down. I mean, all of this assumes people are telling the truth, but let's assume one of them's lying. Who cares? You have an impact statement that's full of lies. So you genuinely take a look at that. You do some hard soul searching and self-reflection. At the end of it, you find like, you know, I don't really think that's a super important area to work on for myself. It doesn't seem like I can do work on it and I don't understand how to. All right. So what? Like you put in some time, you took a look at stuff. And do you know what I mean? And like the actual risk of that scenario is so low. Like people do not go to the trouble of writing an impact statement that just gets read by like a counselor and the harmful supposedly person if they're trying to defame someone. Like there's no value in that. Yeah. And and you mentioned earlier about a lot of people seek that punitive uh, vigilante mm-hmm. kind of justice. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I've definitely seen people using uh, transformative and restorative justice as processes like that. And it, I think that is one of those places where the fear comes up again, like uh, Justin was talking about with the, the young men, like mm. they're afraid of that kind of justice. And I, I think a lot of social justice has been painted with that brush of that it's going to be punitive, that it's going to be very vindictive, that there's there's no room for another side of the story in this. And, you know, I think we can explore what what justice looks like without minimizing any one person's experience. And, and I think of situations where like two people may feel that the other person did them harm. And in situations of mutual harm, no person's experience is invalid mm-hmm. because it's how the experience impacted yeah. them. Right. Um, but both people can take from the impact they had on the other person and learn from that. Whereas when people are like in that raw, we're going to, we're going to get our justice kind of vigilante mode there doesn't seem to be any space for that conversation. And I've even seen people do call outs where they're not even bothering to inform the other person uh, that they, they have an issue with them. They're just doing it more behind closed doors, slowly trying to ostracize a person without them understanding what's been going on. Mm. And in this almost passive aggressive way, which doesn't feel like that's in alignment with consent culture. At least it doesn't feel like that for me. Yeah, if I can speak to a personal experience I had with this, the reason that I do this work, the reason that I am where I am with all this is because a number of years ago, somebody did like essentially an impact statement that there was an incident where I had harmed this person and was completely oblivious to the fact that I had done so. And she sat me down and had a piece of paper written on it the transcript of, of like what had happened and my my heart almost stopped like knowing just having read that I had hurt someone that at that point was like a really close friend of mine just completely shocked me and it took me probably a year to really process that and then decide that what I needed to do was to go forward and like learn about consent and is how I ended up at the consent crew workshop. But I don't know what would have happened had this person or any other person that, that I had harmed just come forward with a call out. Like it took me such a long process to really come to grips with the fact that I had caused harm to another person, even unintentionally, um, but that that had like seriously negatively impacted someone. And to not hate myself for that is still an ongoing process, but it was only by the graces that this person like had decided that what was most important was teaching me how to be a better person and not trying to mete out vindictive justice against me. And I'm eternally grateful for that. And I think the only reason, the only way that I can move forward now is to do this work. Thank you for sharing that, Justin. I think that both Justin and and Victor reflecting here has reminded me that we often want to go into these accountability processes quickly and we want to wrap them up quickly and we want people to feel settled and we don't want people to be sitting in these areas where we haven't resolved things. But something that 
is so incredibly important if we are to go forward in ways that don't harm people further or don't traumatize people further is that these processes take so much time. They take so much work. They take so much emotional work. And it's challenging for us as people that like to get stuff done quickly in general to think about what a, a time frame looks like for a process like that. And one of the challenging things that we've had setting up our conduct committee is that we've had to push back a bit on the expectations of uh, the board who's been helping us set it up around how quickly we can actually go forward to start accepting any sorts of reports within the community because we didn't want to go forward without having at least a strong understanding of what a healthy process would look like should we get into a space where folks wanted a full restorative justice piece versus just, you know, a quick investigation or, or something that wasn't as as potentially harmful or re-traumatizing as some of these processes can have the potential to be if they're rushed into. And that doesn't sit well with folks. We do want stuff to be done quickly. And I don't think that any of these processes around accountability and, and transformative justice can be done quickly. I'm hearing that there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of resistance, uh, there's a lot of impatience around all the issues to do with learning consent and, and being given feedback about one's capacity with consent. And I'm wondering, uh, to wrap up here, if each of you have anything that you would you would want to share with anyone who's listening, especially any men who are listening, who are in that space of feeling like their heart has stopped because someone's given them feedback and they don't know what to do next, or they're worried that they've messed up somewhere and no one's bothering to tell them. I guess I would start with just reminding, reminding folks out there, this too will pass. Like it seems like the end of the world now, but conventionally, you know, the hardest person to satisfy is going to be yourself. And that doesn't mean you should give yourself a free pass, but it, it does mean that it's important to try and understand. It's, it's important also to be compassionate with yourself. People make mistakes every day. And it's not always that those mistakes have horrific, significant consequences for people we love and care about, or even just other human beings. Like it's, it's rare that our mistakes are, are so significant or have consequences so significant that they actually damage our ideas of ourselves as good people. But it's really important to have compassion for yourself because if your goal fundamentally moving forward is to be a better person, to harm people less, to be less harmful, then, you know, if you really feel it serves that goal to, to have the sorts of reactions you're having, that that's all well and good. But I think being kind to yourself can sometimes serve that goal better. It's easier to look at all the things you're doing wrong if you can do that without thinking about yourself as a piece of shit, you know? I know. I think I might have a different take on it that I just acknowledge that, you know, on, on to some basic level, everyone's kind of a piece of shit, <laughs> but that's like this. And this comes from my partner who like, we literally had, this, we sat down and had this conversation yesterday and it was so great where I think he literally just said like, you know, everyone's a piece of garbage. But like once you, what would the, what kind of came out of it was that, you know, if you acknowledge that we're all kind of pieces of garbage, that we all have flaws to us, but that 
one of the biggest gifts somebody can give you is to compassionately tell you how you're failing and where you can improve and for you to, to take that and move forward with that. So if you can take that not as a failure of yourself, that you have flaws and have made mistakes, but as motivation to do better and to live a better life and be a better person, then compassionate feedback and criticism can be one of the greatest gifts that somebody can give you. I think that you've both made really good points. And one thing that I know has helped me and I've heard has helped others is to, in situations where someone has taken that opportunity to bring something up to you, to recognize that that is likely an incredibly courageous thing that they're doing and that they care enough about you or, or they care enough about the relationship. They care enough about your community to actually come to you and, and say this harmed me and you can show equal courage there by examining in yourself what what led to that and also examining what happened there and how that might be an opportunity for you to do better in the future. And I, I think that maintaining that curiosity and that understanding that these are often very courageous acts hopefully can get us out of this place of painting ourselves as really awful people or as, as garbage per people. Although I sometimes do like using the garbage person phrase, I have to say, but if we're able to recognize that courage and maintain that curiosity, I think that we can all move forward on paths of healing in much easier ways than if we just dig in and, don't allow for that space and and that Mm. kindness thank you all of you I am really appreciative of the vulnerable sharings that you've each uh, given here today and uh, I want to recognize that there is great strength and courage in each of you to be on the journeys that you are on I know all of us have gone through our experiences of having to take that feedback and look courageously at our own selves. And that's been part of our journeys into becoming advocates for consent culture. And, uh, and I, I really hope that all of you three continue to do this work in, in the realms that you do it in, because it's so important and it's, it's been amazing to see how things have shifted in the last five years to know that each one of us plays a role in shifting that conversation and bringing more awareness to it. And um, here's hoping that that conversation continues to grow and flourish um, and that, that everyone learns how to do this in a way that is kind, kind to one another and kind to themselves. Because to me, consent, really, it boils down to kindness Is this the kindest thing that we can be doing together? The Masculinity Podcast is made possible by the support of people like you. Please visit my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash masculinity, M-A-S-C-U-L-I-N-I-T-E-A. Your support means the world to me. 
and all people who support this podcast get to join our exclusive Facebook group where the conversation continues. Join us next time for more conversations about men, masculinity, and our relationships to them. In the meantime, if you have ideas, questions, or things you'd like me to talk about, give me a shout. Melina at RadicalRelationshipCoaching.ca